And now for something completely different. A radio show about books. Didn't think it through at all. Inconceivable! <laughs> yes, the show's serious. That's totally a thing. Thank you. Tarzan of the Apes. Brought to you from out the pages of Edgar Rice Burroughs' immortal book. Oh, wow. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. And now for your host, Daniel Thompson, a completely underqualified buffoon who has no idea why he's here in the first place. And all were amazed and said, this guy is really good. Do you do children's parties? <laughs> Hello, people of the internet, and welcome to the Very Serious Writing Show. I am your host, Daniel Thompson, in case you forgot. And today, we have in children's author Gordon Corman. The Gordon Corman, mind you, author of such books. You know, books, those are a thing. Such as Ungifted, School, The Mastermind Series, The Swindle Series, and This Can't Be Happening at McDonald Hall. Listen, this guy has probably written something you've read. He's written so many children's books. His publishing story is so cool. He started writing when he was freaking 12 years old as a school project. Like, right, the, the, the English professor told him to write a book for, as a semester assignment. Does that sound familiar to any of you one-year novel students? Yeah, I'm looking at you guys right now. Apparently that can happen in public school too. This happened to Gordon Corman, and now he's had this huge career of writing books for middle school and teenage audiences. So we're talking to him today about all his stuff. We're going to talk about his writing techniques, some of his publishing techniques. Guys, this is a good interview. I appreciate you all being here today. Gordon Corman, right here on the Very Serious Writing Show. Welcome, and happy Monday. You're here because we want the best, and you're it. Nope, couldn't keep a straight face. Good morning. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. How are you doing today? Uh, doing great. Hey, I appreciate you having time to talk to me. I, I didn't realize that your uh, slacker was out this soon. It was just out a couple days ago, right? Right, exactly. Tuesday. Tuesday. Congrats. How'd the launch go? Well, we didn't do a ton with it, you know. Um, this this time of year, it's kind of like um, a summer book. Okay. You know, so uh, yeah, school's almost out. So you're, so you're sort of picking up like the end of the school year, plus like kids going away to sleepaway camp and stuff like that. So we just did, you know, kind of um, stuff through schools, you know, big scholastic launch through the book orders and that kind of thing. So uh, seems and the reviews have been great, which is which is awesome because. Uh, that makes a big difference, but it isn't kind of like, you know, I, I have this series Masterminds, and and they release in February, and mm -hmm. you know, it's like every book, it's like a two week tour and like a lot of travel. This this is a lot more low key. Okay, so how does the publishing deal with like classic work? Do you you said you you do most of your work with with them, and because it's a kids book, how do you go about promoting it and getting it places? Well, um, I actually have two publishers. Um, okay. So, uh, so the masterminds books are, um, 
are Harper. And, gotcha, yeah. Uh, a lot of my stuff is with Scholastic, and, and you guys might know that I started with Scholastic, Scholastic Canada. Mm -hmm. And actually, to make things even more complicated, um, Scholastic Canada picks up the Canadian rights to a lot of my Harper books in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Although not the Mastermind series, which is, which is still Harper in Canada. So, you know, basically it's just a question of I have an editor, an extremely awesome editor at Scholastic, and an extremely awesome editor at Harper. And, um, and I want to keep on working with both of those guys. So, um, so it's kind of a project by project thing, you, you know. Um, that makes sense. It's, it's a little bit different, I think, because Scholastic, you know, has this amazing advantage of being able to sell directly to kids mm -hmm. um, in schools. And Harper is more, you, you know, they're, they're more kind of committed to the trade platform. Although, although Scholastic tends to buy school rights to my Harper books as well. Now, when you say school rights, what do you mean? Oh, the school rights for... Um, you know, like Scholastic book clubs and um, and also um, like book fairs. Okay. Yeah, book fairs have become absolutely huge. Have they? That's really cool. Oh, yeah. It's it's um it's amazing. Like I have some of my books where um, they have sold more in book fairs than all the other uh, outlets combined. Really? Huh. Yeah. Particularly stuff like. Um, you know, my swindle books were just like mm -hmm. a huge, huge hit on um, on book fairs. Okay. Um, so when you have that market, I mean, it's just it's just enormous. It, it's it's an amazing kind of delivery system to get your stuff into readers' hands. Absolutely. What's well, like the format of one of these these book fairs? Is it just describe one to me because I haven't heard of one of these yet. Oh, uh, okay. I, I haven't well, talked to I mean, anyone who who promotes at book fairs. Yeah, well, um, it's like a school brings in like uh, uh, like a book fair, and it, it's um, I mean, what it physically looks like is uh, almost like rolling shelves. It, it's quite ingenious the way they deliver it. So it, it's the cases that have the books in them are rolling shelves, and you sort of unlatch them and open them up, and you've got like a mini bookstore. Okay. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you get like a bunch of these cases and you set it up either in the gym or the, the cafeteria or the library and suddenly you've got, you know, a temporary bookstore in, in your school. And then um, most schools will like, you know, set up a class schedule where classes come in and, and shop or, you know, they'll have like an evening night where parents come. And it's pretty, it, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty legit, you know, and I think that, um, you are much younger than I, but uh, yeah, this is true. I think what's happened is that I have a, a great memory of spending a lot of my time as a kid going door to door selling like chocolate bars or mm -hmm. scented candles, you, you know, like as fundraisers for my school. And I think that book fairs has sort of given kids a chance to, to sort of replace all those lame fundraisers with something that's at least a little bit more kind of school oriented so it's kind of a win-win for the schools absolutely yeah I, I don't have a background in that because I was I was homeschooled um, so not I read a lot but I, I wasn't involved in book fairs and that type of thing so that's that's really foreign to me gotcha, but, gotcha. But that's a that's a really cool idea though I it's it's a 
it's impressive. It, it's, it seems to me like the uh, the children's book market and the scholastic market is, is very different from like the young adult market and and the adult market moving up. Yeah, in terms uh, well, of the way. I mean, the teen book world today, the the young young adult book world today, mm -hmm. it's, um, is uh, it really follows the adult market more than than kids. Mm -hmm. Although, uh, w what sort of happened, which is kind of funny, is that um, in in most cases, except for the absolute best bestsellers, uh, the the teen world does better. Does it? Yeah. Huh. The the, uh, the the YA book publishing world is actually more successful than the adult publishing world today. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I can see where that makes sense. I mean, there's just there's just more there's more of a market there there's more time to read there's more people actively engaged in it um yeah and i think you know i mean i would not be the, the super expert because um i've written a few teen books i would say i, I would describe myself more as what they call a middle grade writer mm -hmm. but uh but the uh the teen book world has co-opted a lot of adult fans Yes. Yeah, it seems that there's a lot of crossover there. Mm -hmm. Um I'm in college right now and there's there's people who are still in the in the younger uh genres. They're 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 all going back and reading that style of book. Um, yeah. there's very few of them who've crossed over into adult fiction. So that's been an interesting aspect. <clears throat> now, you know, I remember when I was in my twenties, um that, that imprint vintage contemporaries came out, you know, and the, the all the sort of the young Kind of new writers of the of the eighties, you know, like Jay McInerney, you know, Bright Lights, Big City would come mm -hmm. out. It's this sort of really cool looking digest size format, and uh, and they were kind of books, you know, for sort of twenty somethings. Um, I feel like that energy and that sort of creative moment belongs to books being written about twenty, uh, being written about you know teenagers now. I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 an interesting um, environment. Now, what's it like writing uh, stories with a middle grade audience in mind? Well, I mean, I always did it. So, um, you know, I, I wrote my first book when I was twelve. So I was not really conscious of, of writing a kids' book. I just mm -hmm. sort of wrote what I thought would be a good book, and it ended up being a kids' book. And as I got older, um, I just sort of stayed the same. <laughs> I, I continued to write this, uh, this genre that, that I, um, that I really liked and had experience with and understood. Um, it would be wrong to say that I haven't, I haven't thought about it since, like why I love this genre so much. Um, but certainly when I first started writing middle grade, I, um, I, I had no clue that it was a genre or what, what was different about it. You know, I, I think it's like super important because um, I think that that's the age starting around grade four, going up to like seventh or eighth grade where you really become in charge of your own opinion. You know, like you always had stuff you liked or you didn't like, but I think when you're younger than that, you know, there were other people involved. You know, it was a book that your yeah. mom would read and do amazing voices or, you know, your teacher read out and, and you know, it was a great class experience. Mm -hmm. But when you get to that age, you pick your own stuff and you decide what you like and what you don't like. And 
one of the things that I'm amazed about now is the degree to which, like I have these 47 year old fans um, mm -hmm. and they're quite loyal to like the old Bruno and Boots books and the, um, and, uh, the uh, you know the early stuff like I want to go home and who is Bugs Potter and you know some of those some of those old old titles and I think it's because you stay loyal to the first things that you yourself chose. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The the loyalty there is incredible and it's cool that you still have those fans. Have you ever been tempted to write something for the older audience that grew up with your stuff? Or is... you know, it's funny because um, I always thought when I was a kid. That uh, that as I got older, my books would get older, <laughs> and uh, and it, it was sort of happening for a while, you know. Like I, I wrote for sort of teenagers, I, I moved up sort of that one little genre jump from like middle grade to young adult, and I figured, oh, adults next, no problem, it's just going to happen. But uh, but it never really did happen, and you know, I today I have absolutely no interest in writing for the adult world. I um, I wouldn't rule it out if, if the right idea came along, but um, but I hardly even think about it. I love writing for kids. And why why would you never go to adult? Is it just the genres that you're not that you're able to go in there aren't as fun, or what is it? Um, I, I think it's less fun. I think that um, I think that it's it's probably more pretentious. Um, it's a trickier sell, right? Because um, you know, in, in the kids' book world, you've got so many places to sell a book. You know, you can mm -hmm. sell books in stores, you can sell books to libraries, you can sell books in book fairs or scholastic book orders. You know, there's a lot of different delivery systems. Whereas, you know, the publishing world for adults is pretty is pretty uh, cruel, right? I mean, the yeah. book comes out, it's got what, like six weeks in a store or two months in a store. <laughs> to find a home and then it's done, you know, it's mm -hmm. returned. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, um, I have a lot of fans, but they tend to be like, they tend to be no connection to the book slacker. They tend to be like slacker fans, you know, mm -hmm. um, they are not the people who dress up in wizard suits and show up at midnight on, on release day for the Harry Potter party, you, you know, okay. they're kids. They're kids who like my books, and but they but they're not going to chase them anywhere. They're going to kind of wait till the books come to them, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that having a, a big presence on scholastic book fairs and book orders, you know, is really like the extra push to get these to get my books into those kids' hands uh, that 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 my particular fan base needs. Absolutely, yeah. Now, do you have uh, people? Who read your books when they were when they were in middle school? Who have kids now that are passing down these books? Do you get do you get messages from many of these people? Do you know if that goes down? Oh yeah! In, in fact, I mean, in Canada anyway, my my old fan in chief is Justin Trudeau. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not not that I'm in touch with him or anything, but he was. Um, I actually visited his school when he was the son of the then prime minister, and um, <laughs> and when Book TV did an interview. Um, with with various Canadian celebrities to to pick a uh, to kind of pick a book and talk about it. He actually chose this can't be happening at McDonald Hall and talked about my visit, which had to be in like 
I don't know, 80 or 81 or some you know ridiculous time, you know, uh, very early in my own career anyway. Um, but I, I don't know if, you, if you've seen that um, YTV Canada just did a, a TV movie based on uh, Go Jump in the Pool, which is actually the second kind of Bruno and Boots McDonald Hall book. And okay. It came out awesome. I mean, I, I loved it. I, I could not have been more thrilled. But the, the part that really blew me away was that it was almost like a collaboration of all these kind of old fans huh. who read my books, read these books as a kid, and I guess they almost threw it out there. You know, the producers were both old fans. Um, the, the screenwriter was an old fan, the director was an old fan, and, and they just were able to find all these people who grew up with the McDonald Hall books to kind of get together and collaborate on this TV movie. Oh, that's amazing. That is cool. So, so I hear a lot about, you know, this was my dad's favorite book as a kid, or um, I, a teacher will come up to me and say, you know, uh, well, you came to my school when I was in fifth grade, or, um, or actually, I hear it from other writers too. You, you know that you were one of the inspirations when I was a kid to to go into writing. Um, you know, I, I qualified for the pizza lunch at you know <laughs> Oblow Elementary School, and uh, at that day, I decided that one day I would be a writer, and, and that's a really powerful feeling. The idea that you know I've kind of you know, I mean, I always had a sense that I was writing fun books and the people who read them liked them. Um, I didn't really think that I was going to have that much more of an effect on people's lives. Yeah, that you'd be an inspiration for people. It is so cool. It's awesome. For VSWS News, I'm Daniel Thompson. A group of Jackson, Mississippi residents allegedly threw a birthday party for a year-old pothole in their neighborhood. The people of Divine Street put up a tasteful, colorful sign with a conservative number of balloons tied to it over the pothole in question, remarking on its age. Representatives from the city council allegedly remarked, saying, gee, no need to be so passive-aggressive about it, and filled in the hole. The funeral for the one-year-old pothole will be held on May 4th at 3 p.m. A Slovenian chicken has eaten a snake lizard, reports say. I was shocked when I saw my chicken eating lizard snake. I thought she could never eat it whole, but I was wrong, the owner wrote. He reportedly continued saying, The general rule of chicken dumb seems to be, eat it before it eats you. This is the most interesting thing that has ever happened in Slovenia. A Brooklyn pizzeria is now selling pizzas in boxes made entirely out of pizza. They are calling it an environmentally friendly alternative, noting how both the pizza and the box are now edible. This concoction will cost $40. Owners of the store are still unsure on how they will ship the pizza sanitarily without a box, saying maybe we'll wrap it in foil or something. British police took a picture of a man wearing a silver jacket, a motorcycle helmet, and riding around in a motor vehicle shaped like a foot. The London Police Department evidently found this confusing. Upon being questioned, the man in the foot allegedly handed an officer the first full season of Monty Python's Flying Circus and rode away into the sunset in his footmobile. Tensions were high at a Baltimore TV station when a man wearing a full-body panda suit with a bomb strapped to his chest demanded that information from his flash drive be put on the air immediately. The owner of the station refused, despite the man comparing the information within to the Panama Papers. When the police arrived, they promptly shot the panda man, reports say, at least three times. After inspection, the bomb turned out to be a flotation device strapped with a motherboard and several bars of chocolate. 
Finally, an Australian brewery has created a beer using yeast from their workers' belly button lint. For VSWS News, I'm Daniel Thompson. Now, the story about your first your first published novel is so much fun. You wrote when you were you, you said you were in seventh grade. You got it published when you were in ninth grade. I mean, that is that is a wicked cool story. That I'm sure you've told over and over again. I'm curious about your second book. How how was it going from that experience of writing a book in a semester to get, getting it published, and then what was it like, you know, following that up for you? Well, uh, I was in eighth grade. Well, you know what happened was, you know, I went through this whole experience um, of, of with this can't be happening at McDonald Hall, and um, you know, it was a fantastic experience. It certainly changed my life um, because I certainly wouldn't be doing this if if it hadn't been for that school project. I always got better grades in math and science. Um, hmm. So, but yet, as good as it was. When I think back on it, the the one overwhelming emotion that I remember is just being impatient. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, because I mean, think about it. I wrote it in seventh grade. It came out when I was a freshman in high school. That's like that's like almost two years in seventh grade time. You know, so it just seemed like nothing was happening, and it was taking forever and and all that. So I actually wrote my second book. It started off. I had some kind of a writing assignment in grade eight, and I said, "Okay, let me write the first chapter of my of a sequel to the first book, which wasn't out yet." Okay. Uh, teacher said, "Fine." So I wrote it, and um, and I didn't think twice about it. But that summer, right, the summer after grade eight, I was like, "Okay, maybe I can maybe I can finish this book." So I actually wrote the second book. The the summer before the first book was published. Okay. Okay. So you didn't have any any pressure coming up from uh, the book already being published. You were just right on to the next one. Yeah, I didn't really feel the pressure because at, at in the early days, I wasn't um, I wasn't particularly making any money. You know, I mean, I was uh, I, I was a beginning writer. My books were original paperbacks. At that time, they were coming out only in Canada, mm. um, and uh, it wasn't really until like college, you know, maybe when I was nineteen or twenty, that I said, you know, this is this is really getting to be like a real job, and um, and I can I can do this. In fact, it's time to pick a career, and and this is the one I should pick. In, in a way, I mean. That was not a very courageous decision, by the way, since it was also the one that I already kind of had. So, in a way, it was sort of the easiest decision too. Um, and then once I was actually making a living and paying my bills with the proceeds of of writing books, th- then I sort of began to feel some pressure. But um, but back in the early days, I didn't really feel it, just because you know I, I wasn't sort of supporting myself. I didn't really yeah. understand the stakes of having a career. Gotcha. Now man, tell me, how do you how did you write in college? How did you how did you find time to do that? I, I, really, I must really know the secret. The thumpers. You know, I, I would write oh, in okay. the thumpers. I, I would revise during the school year, but but most of the first draft was written in in summers. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I've been trying to keep up writing in college, and it's just it is it's a struggle. 
Right. It's, it's intense. So Yeah. Um I mean I I would say you know, you have a fairly long summer in college and you have mm-hmm. like a pretty big break in January, correct? Yes. And so those would be the, the, the times where I would get stuff done. I, I find it's really, really hard to sort of stick it into evenings and weekends. And one of the hardest things, in my opinion, is, um, you know, the, the people with the writers with day jobs. Like yes. Like trying to find time to write. Like that's kind of brutal. The teachers have an advantage because they've got the big break in the summer. But mm-hmm. uh, everybody else, it, it's rough. Yeah. It amazes me, the people who are able to pull through it. And just keep it going. Mm-hmm. That's why, I mean, this is an experience that I was spared. I, in a lot of ways, the getting started young was like really, really lucky. But um, for every writer, the greatest moment in a way is the moment where, although I'm sure it's also the most frightening, is where you decide to, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I know it sounds like a cliche, give up your day job. Mm-hmm. You, you know, um, but that's a great moment for every writer. Yeah, for sure. I want to get back to uh, like the the middle school uh, question again. When you're writing for that audience, do you have to keep really close track on what you're doing with your prose and your, your the vocabulary you're using, and or does it does it flow really easy for you? How do you work with the knowledge that your uh, your audience is of that specific age? I mean, I think that you know, it would it's probably harder for you know. Like Jonathan Franzen, if he suddenly decided that he wanted to write like a, a middle school book or a middle mm-hmm. grade novel, he would really have to check himself in terms of what he's going <laughs> to say and what he's not going to say. But for me, since I've always done it, ninety-nine yeah. percent of that is um, is is already is already in my head. Like I think in those in those terms, and, and there'll be times, obviously, when a book is going through copy editing, where the copy editor will say, "Oh, this really doesn't sound like a kid would say it." Okay. You know, and a, a lot of times, I mean, that's, you know, they're right. You know, no one is 100% in the, in the middle grade world. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think also, you know, you want to write in the voice of your characters, but it's, it's more important for it to be, it's more important for it to be like, I can't describe it. It's almost like a fake reality than it is than it is the actual reality. It's like if if you take if you record an hour of hanging out with your friends one night, you know, it is absolutely realistic. But if you tried to describe transcribe that, no one would want to read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it's just ninety nine percent of it is just absolutely inane comments that aren't even really in full <laughs> sentences, right? Um, yeah. You know, so obviously you want it to sound like a kid talks, um, but you don't want it to be exactly like a kid talks. Y- okay. You know, you want it to to have enough direction and readability as to transcribe like a, a real story. You know, it's almost like the 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 um, the equivalent of you know a movie where some guy is going somewhere in New York City. You know, he drives down the street, whips whips into a parking space and like runs into a building, you know, which is actually far less real than some guy, you know, driving through a neighborhood, circling 14 times, finally finding a spot, you know, taking like three tries at parallel parking 
you know, and then finally going to the place that's, that's really three and a half blocks away that he's trying to get to. But, you know, you've just spent like seven minutes of, of a 90-minute movie doing absolutely nothing. So, <laughs> yeah. It's so, so it's kind of like a willing suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, there's got to so be that, that. So that's really what I'm shooting for is 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 not exactly what middle graders are like, but something that is is similar to what middle graders are like and will be recognizable as what middle graders are like, but is also, you know, going to advance a story in a reasonable way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, hey, um what do you read? What's what's like your favorite book? Um It's hard to choose one. I would say that. Oh yeah, uh, that's that's pretty impossible. But <laughs> but I, but I still have I still have an enormous. Um, well, I mean, this is going to seem like kind of a dumb one, but I, I'm I'm still greatly fond of the original, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <gasps> um, that's that's like my favorite sci-fi. Oh okay, yeah. Oh my gosh, I love the guide. Um, but I I love uh, Catch Twenty Two. Um, I, I'm a Jonathan Franzen fan. I love Michael Chabon. Uh, not that I could ever be him. I sort of, he's sort of like the guy who's just kind of the natural, mm-hmm. in, in my opinion. And I also I, I love kids books. You, you know, um, I read a lot that's written for teens and middle graders. Um, you know, I actually am the age that. Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing came out when I was in fourth grade or somewhere around there. And I remember reading it as a kid and thinking, you know, like, whoa, they they actually have books written for people like me. I don't think I really knew that at the time. And um, I loved it. And I just started reading all these old classic middle grade novels, old Judy Bloom, Beverly Cleary, you know, uh, the Mad Scientist Club, the Great Brain. And I think that one of the reasons why, when I was in seventh grade, I mean, I really could have written anything, but I wrote really a pretty classic middle grade novel uh, because I loved reading all these middle grade novels. So so I, I think that Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing is, is one of the things that had a huge influence on me. Okay. I, very, very cool. Now, I've heard a lot of people talk about your comedy style, and just is that is that innate as well as the pro style to just the the middle school mindset that you've had since the beginning? Yeah, I mean, since the beginning, I've done I've gone off and on for like sort of adventure. You, you know, like I've done um, a bunch of sort of adventure suspense uh, series as well. You, you know, the mm-hmm. Island trilogy and. On the Run, and I did a, a trilogy of, of, you know, like kids on the Titanic, like historical fiction. But for the most part, I mean, I love humor. Um, it does come pretty naturally to me, and I think that, and part of it is just liking it. You, you know, um, I think when I was a very young kid, and the family would all get together. I always admired the person who was able to say the funny thing and make everybody around the table laugh. And I think that that made me greatly appreciate humor. So it, so when I wrote, it was something I always tried to do when I could. All right, yeah, that, that, makes, that makes sense to me. That is really cool. So tell, talk to me a little bit about uh, Slacker, the new one that's out. Oh, sure. Um, 
Slacker is uh, it, it's semi uh, inspired by um, my uh, my own kids. My my two sons are both uh, video game heads, particularly my older son. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess it, it would be wrong to call them slackers, but but they you know they 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 like. They like their leisure time, put it that mm-hmm. way. So, um, so I kind of um, got this idea of um, of a kid who um, a kid who's you know who's a real video game sort of slacker, and his his parents kind of lay down the law and say, you know, you will get involved in something, and he gets this idea that he'll start a fake club that doesn't exist. Uh, and that way he gets to be the president of it and he can show his parents that he's, he's involved, but he doesn't have to do anything. And then what do you do if the club catches on? And suddenly the guy who doesn't want to be part of anything finds himself at the center of everything. Um, (laughs) and you know, this is like a, a story that, that I love that you sort of start, you know, the idea that you start something and it, it kind of takes on a life of its own, and and you're kind of stuck holding the ball, the the ball, you, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it, it's a it's a it's a great um, a great like fun experience for me ha- having written this book. But it's also, I mean, like uh, it's also sort of about the nature of being involved and and uh, and, and kind of you know. The, the group he forms is called the public, the the positive action group, the PAG. Uh, so it's sort of like a public service association. And I mean, he has no interest in public service since he doesn't expect the thing ever to be real anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, it's sort of about the nature of good deeds and community service and and all that too. Um, I am not a very didactic or preachy writer. You know, no one has ever finished one of my books, put it down and said, yep, now I know the meaning of life, uh, <laughs> which is which is not to say that my books are, are totally devoid of any uh, social relevance whatsoever. It's just, I feel like it, it's got to get there naturally. You know, if I sort of set out to say, oh, I'm going to write a book that's an anti-bullying book, or I'm, I'm going to write a book that shows that we all have our unique talents, or I'm going to write a book about the nature of getting involved, um, it would just come out terrible. But when it comes, when it sort of comes in as the gravy rather than mm-hmm. the meat and potatoes, then that's that's the best way for it to work out in, in my particular case. And that's just something you discover along the course of the story. Exactly. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've never heard anyone say that there's a better way than that. Mm-hmm. You, and I love the cover of this book. The, the oh. cover just makes me smile. Yeah. Um, I love the idea of um, of sort of taking an animal that is somewhat tangentially involved in the story and, and sort of replacing the main character with the animal. Like, obviously, the main character, Slacker, is not a beaver. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we we sort of discovered that with the with the swindle books too, which are not about a dog, but uh, okay. But there's a dog in it, and you know, once the dog is on the cover and the book becomes a bestseller, you know, the publishers are like, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so, dog, this Doberman becomes the official spokes beast of of the swindle books. Um, it, it, it's worked out great, and of course, it's a great way to catch kids' attention. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, as a kid, I wouldn't have been able to look away from that book. <laughs> that, is, that is wonderful. 
Now, the, you just you also this year released the uh, the seventh book in the Slacker series, or the Swindle series. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, is is that the last book in the series, or is this just a continuation? Well, Swindle was. Uh, I think it might have been. Uh, no, that was 2015. Uh, oh yes, I'm sorry. So no, there is going. I'm to, still living in 2015. <laughs> yeah, so there is going to be one more Swindle. It's called Jingle. It's my holiday slash Christmas Swindle. That's fun. Um, in th- this case, it's featuring the dog in a Santa suit, which is uh, following the uh, stick an animal on the cover <laughs> uh, policy that we seem to be going with, and <laughs> um, uh, and then. The, the book that came out this year was Mastermind's Criminal Destiny, which is the second book in the Mastermind's trilogy. Okay. So are you excited about that? Have you been getting good feedback? Mastermind's has been great. You know, it, it, it's, um, it's a little bit more intense than, than what I normally write, but the response from kids has been, has been awesome. Um, it's about these kids in, in sort of a very insulated kind of nothing isolated town and they suddenly realize that they're part of a um, kind of a nature versus nurture experiment to determine you know what makes us the kind of person that they are Uh, and they realize that that the principle is you know if we take evil people and give them the perfect life and raise them in the perfect town and they learn nothing about you know war or crime or violence or cheating or or even you know lying will they still grow up evil because that's their nature or will they grow up uh good because that's what we've nurtured them to become now obviously to make it work you gotta start from the very beginning so what you need is you know evil babies well where do you get evil babies so what they do is, here's where the experiment gets a little bit twisted. They clone them from evil adults. So they huh. go to the prison system and they find the worst criminal masterminds doing time anywhere. Yeah. Murderers, mm-hmm. gangsters, embezzlers, kidnappers, terrorists, like the worst of the worst. Um, and that's who the masterminds kids turn out to be they were never supposed to learn the truth about themselves and uh the trilogy sort of follows that voyage of discovery and how they ultimately escape project osiris and turn on it wow that's cool yeah it's it's um you know one of the things i found you know um not that i think you know i mean your podcast sort of deals with some pretty serious you know craft issues so i don't think this is going to be particularly like groundbreaking for any of your listeners but you know the last thing you want to be when you're writing is just bored like if you're bored writing you write boring and in that way you're almost a part of your own audience because if you can't even entertain yourself you know how are you going to keep strangers interested um and and so trying different stuff is in my opinion the most vastly important thing for a writer to do if you're going to do it over a long period of time. You know, like I'm 52. I wrote my first book when I was 12. So more than three quarters of my life has been spent, you know, doing this job. And I think that, you know, I've always had the most success when I tried to write a little outside my comfort zone, when I always sort of felt like, oh, I have a real chance of 
of failing, you know, that, that mm-hmm. fear that you just can't do it, um, has, has been an amazing motivator uh, for me to be a good writer and a creative writer and to think outside the box. Um, you know, whenever I start to feel, I got this, you know, this is what I do. I, I know exactly how to make this work. Um, it's a confident feeling, but at the same time, it, it sends up a red flag for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's if it's about not boring yourself with your writing, unless you're excited, unless there's a little bit of danger for you, you know, that's just that's just a play in there, Gordon. That's a beautiful piece of wisdom. <laughs> I'll t- I'll I'll take it. Um, we are about out of time. I think. I think I think we're towards the end. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. Oh, not a problem. I, I had a lot of fun. I've loved talking with you. You have an excellent day, and. I'll talk to you again. Okay, great. Good to talk to you. I'm so glad we've had this time together. Yep, pretty much. Hey, guys, thanks so much to Gordon Corman for being on the show. This dude is super cool. He was super chill to talk to. Man, this guy, cool person. If you like the Gordon Corman, let him know. He has a website where you can send him, like, things. Like, you can talk to him and stuff. You know, the Gordon Corman website. It's cool. It's legit. Totes my goats. And thank you all for being here today. Because after all, without you all, it's just me talking to a guy over Skype. Which is still super cool. Honestly, it's super cool. I'd probably do it anyway. But I'm glad that y'all are here to listen to this. Because it just makes that ex- this experience just so much better. So, thank you all for being here. As always, I'm on the Facebooks, the Twitters, and the Goodreads. And the show is on iTunes and SoundCloud for your listening convenience. I understand the SoundCloud app. The SoundCloud app? I hear it sucks. That's the word on the street. I don't know. I'm going to look into fixing it, if at all possible, but right now, I'm going to go eat pancakes. Because what's happening is this is college, and there's late night pancakes. Not that it's super late night right now, but I mean, 10 o'clock in the evening. For pancakes, that's pretty late. So I'm going to go eat those. It's the president's pancake breakfast at 10 o'clock at night. I don't, don't ask me how that's a breakfast. I think the president does it just so that, like we'll stay up late and not study before our morning final because I have a final this morning. Wish me luck, everybody. Wish me luck. Managerial counting. Isn't that just great? Oh, good joy. Yes. Anyway, you all have a lovely Monday. Enjoy your finals, and I will see you on the other side. Catch you later, my peeps.